Have you ever really thought about cheese? <laughs> we went to a juggalo convention. <laughs> Surprisingly, they're making some good cheese. Famous breast milk cheese makers. Tea party juggalo. Gathering of the tit milkers. Real estate expert. Juggalo and real estate expert, Bozo Niner. Famous Republican luminary. Centrist liberal Democrats giving themselves a pat on the back. We caught up with Bozo Niner while he was beating his husband. You see, things aren't always how you think they are. We have a uh, from straight hot off the telex. We have uh, printouts of uh, of a new joint uh, in the New Inquiry by David A. Banks mm. um, called "Podcast Out," and it sort of deals with. You think this article would be about podcasts, and it is for a lot of it. But what I most like about it is the way that he ties together some features of podcast with some features of I don't know political liberalism. And like the damaging effects that both can sort of have on their listeners slash citizens. Right. Really, it's about rhetoric in a certain way. The types of arguments liberals find persuasive is sort of... We're capitalizing liberal here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awaiting only a Neo in a Matrix scenario to become... Oh, but we all have to be careful that, you know, that we are guilty. (laughs) Don't you? (laughs) Yeah, we're certainly guilty. Um, the, maybe a good place to start would be in a critique that is pretty pretty far reaching, but sort of centers on uh, Radio Lab, Freakonomics. These NPR podcasts are in our author's sites, and he says to try and summarize what each show sort of does. That's gross. Uh, each show delivers an old anecdote from an economist or a new study from a team of neuroscientists that shows. We may actually be hardwired to do uh, exactly what we feel comfortable doing. Cue the same word repeated by a dozen whispering voices or a few bars of a rat-a-tat rip-off ambient band. And we're on to a new book that argues organic food is not only good for you, it might make you a better person, too. Finally, there's a brief introspective monologue delivered in the exact same cadence of someone breaking up with you. <laughs> uh, ten minutes later, you're listening to the credits read by a guest into a voicemail inbox, NPR's podcast, depoliticize important issues by recasting them as interesting factoids to be shared over cocktails, stimulating but inherently incomplete. And that yes. something about that seems dead on to me. Dead on in the sense of these are horrible podcasts or dead on in, in terms of getting at a larger problem? Yeah, no, the larger problem uh, is, is what I mean. Certainly these are horrible podcasts. It, it really grosses me out how obsessed with their own slickness they are and if yeah. you're here's yeah here's the problem the problem is about all of these pod what all of these podcasts do plenty of people do too namely they like find relevant factoids in science or history advance some thesis and then like sort of like inauthentically wonder about how this might change our viewpoint on thing x or the world and then sort of end it there right that's the deep that's as deep as it goes the city of venice is sinking and they love this they kind of cheese love it. <laughs> it might seem crazy to suggest that this kind of cheese is sinking venice but when we look into it is it? I 
Turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on the way. And then they go to you like, Tom took a trip to Venice. <laughs> he like tells you. I was about really his excited. Uh, it was my first time in Venice. It's one of the world's great cities, said the uh, Facebook uh, World's Great Cities page. And you're listening, being like, when are they going to bring it back? But they drag it on for so long. And when did no, you my, try the cheese? It Stop. was actually my second wife, uh, Judy, who uh, first... Venice. Did Judy try the cheese? No, uh, we all tried the cheese, and um, we all got sick. And then it's just like, you got sick from the cheese, and then the music goes in, and you fade out. It's like... <laughs> We're going to get back to that, is the implied. <laughs> but first, we have to go check on Tom and Judy. They're talking about how this one paralyzed woman holds a secret to better orgasms. Meet Martha. When I first enter Martha's house, she looks like she's masturbating. But actually, she's petting a small cat that's too small for me to see. And masturbating. <laughs> Later on, we masturbated. I was paralyzed for 40 years, and it all is because of that kind of cheese. Venice was at the height of approximately 3,100 blah blah blah. Get weird random facts. The Medici is called Venice the jewel on the Adriatic. <laughs> what is an orgasm to a paralyzed person anyway? I turn my camera on. I cut my fingers on the way. No, I mean uh, everyone knows that when the Steve Miller band played the Venice Amphitheater, uh, it was a, it was a bloodbath. 40, 40 members of the uh, production crew got sick. Uh, Sixteen different uh, Steve Miller impersonators got sick. You know, everyone knows about that. Uh, but we thought it was an isolated incident. We didn't understand that there was this whole thing going on. Then the Hell's Angels came. Yes, and one of those Hell's Angels is actually something more than a Hell's Angel. He is a Geologist. <laughs> he studies sinking. <laughs> Join us, won't you, for Canal Tamont, Hell's Angels Meet Venice. When I first looked into this, I didn't expect to find anything cheese based. So you could imagine <laughs> my surprise. I think that that is definitely a aspect of the problem. It also seems like an aspect of the problem is that our sort of love of, of science or sort of objective analysis, a good graph, a sort of insight the social scientists have found for us uh, can replace the actual um, taking a position and making an argument based on yourself. There's this sort of attitude of like, you know, sip coffee. Like, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with, like, the facts as described to me by Radiolab. Yeah, right. You know? that It does seem like I have. we all have to admit that on the left, sometimes it seems like we're afraid of a good fight and we just want to, like, show you the math and say, once they've learned, like, basically, anytime liberals lose a argument very hard, they're like, now the problem is education in this country. Because mm-hmm. the, if everyone understood the facts as well as we do... It would all be over. Is yeah. that another part of it? In short, they're pure evil. Bad podcasts, and in fact, most podcasts are pure evil. Radiolab in particular, because Radiolab specializes in distinguishing the world into smart people and stupid people, and Radiolab in becoming the stupid person's idea of a smart person. And the stupid person, uh, stupid person's idea of a smart person is always the most evil person in the room. Well, they're certainly the most like scientifically-minded person in the room. Right? Yeah, evil. That, so... It, it's nice for us to sort of sit around and talk about 
uh, scientists as evil. But by and large, the theory advanced by these podcasts and in a certain very popular strain of capital L liberalism is that science is just scientists are those people who talk and can't be disagreed with or something like that. Yeah, in other words, like if I if I can ground my little tendencies, if I can ground my little actions in uh, like the neuroscience of the day or really the neuroscience as interpreted by Michael Lewis, as interpreted by the Radiolab editors and the Radiolab hosts who have to talk to Michael Lewis about the, what he talked to the neuroscientists about, then I'm sort of like good in a way. This is unimpeachable and we're so aching in this world for unassailable truths that aren't like what what you might call subjective opinions that can be refuted. Yeah, given good sort of musical clips, you're hardwired to really like to learn about what you're hardwired to uh, do given a certain set of circumstances. and Like what, is there a way for you to articulate Nick what, why you might call that kind of paradigm evil? Uh, because it's a mechanism of control. Yeah. You, Adam, you talk about this point where Socrates compares uh, on the one hand, a pastry chef and on the other hand, a doctor. Yes. What they're doing differently, what they're doing differently. And it seems like they're like the the problem with the radio lab people the thing that i would describe as evil isn't exactly like oh we have a desire for a certain kind of insight about society or individuals or wanting to tell a bunch of stupid people a certain story but it has to do with the fact that they have rejected complicated emotional nuanced stories because they want to make sure they're perceived as authorities so they are very much these people who are going to give you digestible like music infested overly slick uh, pseudo like scientific answers they're pastry chefs who keep telling you that donuts are medicine yeah and they've gotten really good at putting the donuts in like a little orange you know pill jar with a white cap and they're gonna make you they wear the white coat and they they're on the radio all. after all you literally infotainment works because you're not saying to yourself like oh i'll just sit back and like forget about things i'll actually learn something but you don't learn anything you forget the episodes sort of nonsensical yeah i mean to me that's the uh like the irritating unhelpful unhealthy aspect of fucking radio lab the evil part comes in where they, Radiolab, sees themselves as thoroughly non-political because above the controversy of politics, right? right? And the most evil things always cast themselves as non-political because, in fact, they are the most political things of all. They're the things that are enforcing what can and can't be thought of as politics. Yeah, to talk about control really is important like because uh, there, there's no doubt that by aching after um, truth you are sort of announcing yourself as susceptible to anyone who will come around, whether it's a pastry chef uh, wearing a mustache or a doctor, you're, you're going to be susceptible to anyone coming around purporting to offer you truth. And, you know, scientists and science get off, despite the fact that you can, you can read about how plenty of scientific research is sort of 18 months later re retracted or flawed or published uh, under mostly pressure to get tenure and not out of a kind pressure of actual respect. Yeah, like all sorts of science is questionable. And that's just the, for social reasons. You could actually get into, were there a scientifically literate uh, populace at the other end of Radiolab? They might ask deep questions about what exactly they're being told. But we're desperate for the truth. The scientists and the meat packers of science at Radiolab are here to sort of provide it to you as tasty as candy. Yeah, there's a whole baby bird 
aspect where they're like really feeding it to you, <laughs> you know, like very pre-packaged, sliced up. Super pre-packaged. Today we'll talk about, and then they sort of give you the topic and you know it's 50 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's already on your iPod and you're ready to go. And, and they, they, I'm not sure it's possible to more thoroughly disrespect what should be respected about science or the capital S. That if you talk to an actual scientist, somebody who does it as a profession, they're the least epistemologically certain person you'll come across right they're a person whose entire life's work hangs in the balance of their colleagues opinions of it and its reproducibility and in that hail of artillery have to go comfortable with the fact that what they were most certain of in the world might be disproven in 18 months this right. is exactly the opposite right. personality to the one presented by radiolab scientists do not think of themselves as arbiters of truth right they would be fucking fired from the university if they did. This is why our, our guy Banks um, gets at this. Um, and we have a printout here. None of this would be important, uh, our boy writes, if NPR's science journalism existed in a vacuum. It does not. The individualistic perspective endemic to NPR pervades all progressive thinking. And the question of which disciplines contribute to our common sense behavioral economists instead of sociologists, psychologists, instead of historians, has direct political implications. To be clear, this is not a blanket indictment of expertise brought to bear on social problems. Rather, the left must step back from the brink of outright scientism and reevaluate its deployment of positivist explanations for social and political problems. Positivist because... Yeah, I was going to ask about his use yeah, of Yeah, my understanding of his use of positivist there comes from like a school of philosophy of science in the early uh, teens and 20s. Um, a lot of these people wound up at Pittsburgh. Positivism, the idea that there is no deeper explanation to what is um, scientifically verifiable, so what is falsifiable or what is borne out as data in experiment. The deeper explanation, what you might call, what he, what uh, our author calls the relationship between meaning and action. Meaning? Yeah. Doesn't, not allowed. I'm not seeing that in the data, Eric. So there... <laughs> I love when he ties this into, and now we understand elections according to polls. and Right. Right? Like, as opposed to, as if the word narrative, like, wasn't annoying enough, we've, like, dropped it because that was too human for us. And now we just want polls and numbers. And when he says the thing about the infographic that is, he sort of imagines an infographic that's, uh, this is what poverty does to your child's brain. It's like a chart. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's a devastating point because it's true. That is how we make our points now. We don't. We don't want to actually say, like, this is who I am. This is what I care about. Like, mock me. Disagree with me. I might be wrong. We want to, like those boring senators on C-SPAN, we want to hold up the chart and be like, no, right. the Denos is. There's, like, a lack of taking responsibility that I think is sort of particularly horrific in podcast form where you actually have the privilege of, like, talking directly into someone's fucking ears. Right. As a human person. Right into their fucking ears. We all have so... It seems like this has come about a byproduct of deliberate engineering. In other words, it's a lot... If you're tired of being constantly refuted, if you're tired of, like, competing narratives that seem to hold just as much water as yours does, if, if you're tired of uh, your appeal to... Um, philosophy being met with a equally meretricious appeal to history then what you really want is in a kind of unrefutable data set to call from to make your points and you know we've in, tried to arrive at that 
and presented to you in a like non-confrontational sort of peaceful way. You're a liberal, by the way. If you yeah, love you're a liberal this whole time, if you love that very same sort of contradiction and and sort of gridlock that was just described, if you if you are hungry for that Thanksgiving dinner discussion in which the other side won't admit your facts, like you are a conservative and you do not right. need to listen to NPR. You are your own radio lab. Well, yeah, increasingly anyway. You don't really need Fox News is becoming obsolete because Republicans are becoming Fox Crazier. News unto themselves. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, yeah, on Facebook or whatever. They can just like invoke their like weird nonsense muse and, and they're convinced. And liberals want to step away. I really do think that fundamentally liberals don't want to have arguments. Yeah, I, I'd even go further and say that if you imagine your capital L liberal as being uninterested in deeper narratives because science now explains everything in terms of whether eating carrots makes your baby's brain, brain big. That distance the liberal has from a narrative explains why conspiracy theories are suddenly so powerfully compelling. Because a conspiracy theory, to somebody who believes it, is nothing but narrative personified, a narrative big enough to contain you, your human entity, and everything you need and want out of life. I, I quite, think, quite an opposition to the story science is telling us about your brain. Right. Would, well, interestingly enough, I would argue that there's a way in which conspiracy theories can latch on because conspiracy theorists really believe them. And the truth about what's happening with all these other pieces of infotainment and conspiracy theories that most of us are interacting with is they're not really sticking. I think some of the scientism sticks, some of the lingo, all of a sudden it seems like everyone you know will be using the same words. It's like instantly everyone's saying normalizing and privilege and but the right. actual story seems it's like who remembers what they heard on radio lab yeah. it seems all sort of blurry yeah that's that's how pap works yeah. yeah so right on the one end it's exploiting the idea that you're just going to be like digesting little like regurgitated chunks all day long and you're just gonna they're all gonna get caught up in the tornado of yourself and you're gonna spit them back on to whomever and right and there are no real people that you interact with in that po- you didn't like learn some person's story in some way where they're gonna stay with you it's like you know it's, like he says is or does organic food make you a better person what exactly you know what I mean? There's no yeah. life there to every, hold on to. Tell me what you think of this. Uh, on the one hand, every one of these Radiolab episodes, like, you know, like four, 14 children all played with the same toy and they like all wound yeah. up to be astrophysicists. Like, here's what happened or whatever. Right, right. Uh, We're going to chase it down. They don't make the toy anymore. Yeah, they, right. That, that all could be presented as a kind of conspiracy theory. In other words, common sense says that eating uh, whole tubs of Crisco might uh, negatively affect your health. But we talked to one Venezuelan (laughs) or whatever, and he says his whole town eats Crisco or whatever. What this teaches us about love next, right? right? Like they differ from conspiracy theorists only in the conclusion. In other words, the conspiracy theorist wants to end a Radiolab segment like that by saying like, by saying something activist in a broad sense, like go get your Crisco or whatever. Stop believing what the FDA tells you about Crisco, right? right? It's all a lie. Uh, I've, here's I, the, the, the following presentation is the truth. Thus, now we know before we didn't. Whereas Radiolab segments all end with like, so who knows? It's like, oh, I guess it's fine. And then well, over some like really deep music, like the narrator guy could be like, Really, since time immemorial, <laughs> generations of people have looked toward 
Myths. Reptiles. <laughs> yeah, and that's like the most like harmless version. There totally are these versions where they're like, you know, in developing countries, those labor laws can really like <laughs> hold back young like yeah, Pepe's right. chance at, at advancement. And it's just like you're they're making this like it's like they've got it's like Thomas Friedman Jamson news or whatever. It's like yeah. they're bringing you that fucking the most powerful interests are being served up to you. Like, huh, here's an interest. Here's a quirky tale of some counterintuitive stuff. Gladwell style. Yeah, right. And it's like, oh, I guess we do need to cut taxes. Yeah. And like this, this is where the evil makes another uh, entrance that implying that the way the world really is and the most numerous constituents of it are little scientific factoids separated by bloopy music. That's pure evil to me. But, you know, it's the bloopy music that makes that that distinguishes that from a conspiracy theorist website. I think right? that's exactly right. Okay, just Wait making out. sure. In other words, like here's like the, uh, conspiracy theorist website. They all look the same. They're all angelfire.com slash tilde uh, kike killer nine slash right like, conspiracy yeah, dot htm they That's got the that website. truth you can only convey with very interesting use of like capitalization yeah right and they're all using like web tactics that are yeah, way well outmoded and all the text is centered on a busy background and you can't yeah. read it but it's basically like fact colon <laughs> Like the government intervened in uh, the Bay of Pigs fiasco to uh, overthrow, and they distributed leaflets with all kinds of propaganda. Uh, period. Fact. Mostly true. A lot of them are. A lot of the factoids that conspiracy theorists start from are like vetted historical truths true. to build towards saying like, like, so is it so crazy that like you know that yeah, yeah. Hillary Clinton is a is a baby raper. Yes, this is true. And if it were a Radio Lab episode, then you'd know you were halfway, like through. Because I feel like Radio Lab is going to take you back around. You know, like they take you, they it's much the same way. They mislead you in this like excited fashion, and then rather than being crazy people in an unslick way shouting at you, they were actually just manipulating you and are going to slickly and using jingles or whatever bring you home to a safe place. Let's take a break and talk about Squarespace. <laughs> Do you know the most... Let me tell you about one of the most egregious recurrent moments that happens now. is You're listening to a podcast like from someone you really don't think is going to advertise for Squarespace. Right. Like the 538 people or whatever. <laughs> and like... You know, like it's just like it seems to be people talking about the election or whatever, like worried, talking about the numbers, <laughs> right. talking about the articles, and they're like, "Okay, should we?" Uh, yeah. So, um, the Fine Wines Club is a great way to get fine <laughs> yeah. wines into uh. your home if you don't like, because like you know, I, I I know how you feel when you walk into the wine store. You don't know what the fuck to do. You're scared. You're sweaty. You've never seen a bottle of wine before. You don't know the difference between red and white. You're afraid of looking dumb in front of the wine cashier. All you know about glasses, it cuts you. It's very. It's stressful. terrifying. So, wine club in your home is dot com is here to go remove home. that stress. Go home. Throw go on, home. Throw on a, a book from Audible. Have <laughs> a glass of wine. You know what I mean? And maybe they'll send you the wines. You don't have to pick to you. them. They know what you like. They're gonna they be got great. Your DNA. They're gonna be great. You're gonna want to recommend them to your friends. You just you go on Mailchimp, send everybody an email about the wine you like so much. It's gonna be it's gonna be fabulous. That way you don't have to look the fool 
in the wine store. You'll never meet anyone like that. They all know you don't know anything. They're all against you. It's terrible how they you know live. You buy your underwear on subscription. It's if you go to Wine Club right now and you enter, wine club in your home. if you go, click on the microphone and enter the code Scientism, it's destroying <laughs> the left. You will get the free Venice cheese from today's episode. The one that sunk <laughs> the city. You'll get uh, that. It's it normally, pairs really good with the Chablis. Oh. They'll send you, but you can't ask for it. They'll send it to you. Don't ask. You, if you ordered any more of this cheese, it would be like a Florida highway. The sinkhole would be so big. That's right. We send you the maximum safe dose of the cheese. Which we've yeah. Don't worry. What, we've calculated. <laughs> I feel like there's a way which we start start telling people to do a fucking uh, put the code in. You just naturally can't use your own voice. You've already, even hypothetically, you're such a fucking sellout. Click on the microphone. Every turns out if you, if I guess on every website that you can uh, buy a subscription to anything on, there's a microphone there just waiting for the podcast to sell out so that they can microphone can turn into a link. And then they come back, but they never got back to that Venice story. Yeah, no. <laughs> they're, they're just like, act two. If I think conspiracy theorizing is a kind of science uh, gone wrong or a, like scientific habits, you know, to be like an internet detective is to sort of like think when you're zooming in on like a photo of a pizza shop sign and sort of comparing it, right? Doing the research, like finding another right. document where the FBI <laughs> amazingly and truly pointed out that certain symbols are somehow indicative of certain sexual proclivities. That re- that like comparative research is like science gone wrong in a certain way. You're not vetting evidence yeah. properly, right? I don't think anybody would disagree with that. And you know what Radiolab is? It's not science gone wrong. It's advertising gone wrong. It's all the slick principles that make something so silky smooth and digestible. And uh, in, and they're like sort of slaves to sort of formatting tricks such that the author can and we can come up with like fake Radiolab segments. Right. That's not science gone wrong. That's it's science packaged up like a commercial. Yeah, and it's it kind of storytelling gone wrong. I feel like there's a complaint here that has this to do with losing sight of the fact that things happen to real people. People have experiences. We are supposed to decide what they mean without bringing in a, bringing in an expert who does like. I mean, it's so bad that it's slickly presented to us, but it's also not a great instinct to think that like every issue, rather than going and getting someone who experienced it and hearing their story. And asking like the right questions. So what we really need is somebody who's like, you know, done the stats or has some like counterintuitive book. Yeah, but the fact is the radio lab has them both, right? We have like one young child who's experienced the thing, and then the guy uh, at his university in his office sort of telling you about the stats and we speak to his collaborator on the phone. Amazingly, when Radiolab gets a hold of someone who experienced it, they treat, because they have talked to an expert, they treat themselves as the expert and put the other guy, the actual person who experienced it on the defensive, right? And you, as the listener, can then sort of consider yourself the expert having examined this issue from all sides. Maybe the, maybe that's a one way to talk about it, is if this isn't about a sort of pseudo-transfer of expertise, that it's all about feeling like... You got the truth handed to you in, in a usable package. Yeah, I mean, and this is what makes it uh, evil in like a modern uh, 
commercial sense that the purpose of an advertisement on television is twofold. You mention the name of the product and you make the person feel a certain way that you can associate with that product. In the case of Radiolab, the product is science and fucking scare quotes. And the way they, they feel about it is a kind of odd cowedness, right? And that adoption of the commercial approach to all entities in the world, I don't know, that's almost more evil to me than uh, the denial of politics, the denial that science takes place in a political sphere, that human beings walk across the earth uh, beholden to political goals they can't even see, right? It's sometimes hard to tell if the science is the point or if the science is like the universal tool that's sometimes whipped out to sort of like bring your your little story over the over the hump into objective reality or something like that. Like it's great that you found some kind of like river community um, who all like <laughs> they're all great at like making lists or something and what we might be able to learn about our own list making from them. It's great that you can sort of tell that story, but if you have like some brain scientist there to be like, well, no, I mean, we find in great list makers that they all have like this same like EEG response or right, right. or whatever. And, you know, when we EEG'd the river people, they all had the same sort of like uh, sort of reaction. Like that's like that's meant to bring the this out of the realm of anecdote and into the more of the realm of like norms, right? Normative. You're meant to now like sort of you should be like this or shouldn't be like this. I actually don't, haven't listened to enough Radio Lab. I, I mean, Radio Lab style. As a genre, we're right, saying as Radio a Lab. genre, yeah. just to be clear. But like, what's disgraceful seems to be the focus on just what's effective. You know, like that's what I don't like about it. Is, this is the utilitarian reality that our author means to call out as a symptom of modern progressives. Yeah, I think that this is the problem: is that you these people only focus on on what's going to work and it's why the music for radio lab is so sort of telltale to me because you can just feel that it was made by somebody who's just figuring out how to like you know sort of move you down the conveyor belt of like yeah. shallow uh contentment what's called the slaughterhouse the slaughterhouse one might call it the slaughterhouse of shallow contentment is a great title for something and the slaughterhouse of slaughterhouse, the of, slaughterhouse shallow of shallow contentment is mm. ultimately where we find ourselves in the optimistic NPR liberal podcast area of the world right now. Right. You look anywhere in the world and it's all a nightmare yeah. slaughterhouse. No, no, no. Yeah. All contentment. you're trying to do is to get to the fucking the slaughterhouse of like deeply felt you know, erratic emotional yeah. experience, perspicacious yeah, yeah. information, yeah. You know, not contentment exactly, but you know, non-permanent despair and anguish and yeah. non-permanent, you know, the slaughterhouse of deep catharsis. Nostalgia maybe is a good one. I keep thinking about the, like you said before, Adam, if you're a liberal who doesn't want to have any arguments over Thanksgiving, yeah, that really, the claim in this article is that the like capital L left, the Democratic Party, liberals with capital L, they're overrun by this type of person who seems so unfathomable to me. I get why you don't want to ruin Thanksgiving, you idiot, if you're listening to this. But listen, it's you can't bring that attitude of like not wanting to upset your drunk uncle so he doesn't hit you. You can't bring that attitude onto the world at large. My diagnosis of that liberal who doesn't speak up, who's like trying to avoid the argument in Thanksgiving, it's very important to note they're not afraid directly afraid of the drunk uncle, the racist uncle, whatever, they're superior and sort of eye-rolling. They're like, I don't want to get it started because almost like, they talk about it as if they brought a gun to a knife fight and they're yeah. just like, I don't want to take this gun out. And then one day you wake up and all those uncles like elected, you know, 
some fucking you know lizard monster. Yeah, I mean the the, the way I see it is that in the most common case, the Fox News uncle and the eye rolling liberal are looking for opportunities to be contemptuous of each other in public, which is obviously not the same as a political debate, and just serves to further the divide and more solidly uh, confirm each person's political beliefs in their separate camps, irreconcilable for the all for all time. If you really are afraid of that, can, of having to sacrifice that contempt, in other words, if you're afraid of entering an argument as a young liberal because you are afraid that you will accidentally come to terms with someone who you want to maintain as a as vilified and as an opponent, then, yeah, then, first of all, that's problematic. You're not actually after... Uh, any political force you're after a kind of emotional detente and yes. fuck you for yes. a different reason That's right. but I actually think you're afraid of losing the argument because at some point the uncle will make some egregious claim like actually um, you know when in in countries where child labor is increased uh, everyone's happier and you are afraid that you won't have in your satchel the tools with which to defeat yeah. him you'll declare like it hopeless? they do not seem like they only want to maintain contempt for their opponents, they seem totally insecure, and like they lack, like they utterly lack confidence or tools with which to have an argument to its fruition. I think that, that this, they'll be bested. They're afraid think, they'll be bested. I think that, uh, like, this is why sometimes the discussion ends up being about uh, racism or sexism, like the, these kinds of issues. Because I think it's some of the only time people on the left are sort of sure they're right and want to fight about something is you know probably not even enough but they say like that's racist uncle they actually like speak up it's so amazing the way we say like oh there's just there's no convincing them you know what i mean that we're so sure that this, these people on the other side who have all their facts wrong have gotten those facts from sources that were so much more convincing than we can be and so we're like sort of you know, just confused. And then, but if they're racist, we might like be able to point that out. But really when it comes to economic problems, how to govern like any kind of controversy, it seems like people don't have the tools. Yeah. Not only do or I, the faith, I, I think that's, I think that's completely right. And I also think there is like a, there is a kind of, when Jonathan Chait writes about like the scary dangerousness of political correctness on the left or right. whatever, the kernel of truth in that idea is that by exempting yourself, young liberal, from any conversation just because your opponent has um, said a thing, literally just said a thing that you deem unacceptable, you are now uh, giving yourself an easy out to go back and listen to Radiolab up in, in, with headphones to not develop ever the tools to have a conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said for oh, – I mean – yeah, I'm of a number of minds. Not condoning racism, you see. No, no, no. I do. I know this, and I, but, and I also know that, like, I, I guess there's a way in which I feel like liberals are often not even able to have that conversation. But in another way, it's like the only conversation they're able to have. They're definitely not able to. Very often. What about how you just said something unacceptable? Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of times, like, that's the thing. In, in guns, a little bit, because the fact they're like, sure, the facts are on their side, but to really, like, try and get in there and convince, uh, you know, your very, like, working class uncle or whatever that he shouldn't be voting for these people who want to cut taxes for the rich, that that's somehow. The fact it doesn't feel like the facts are on your side enough or something. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's I think an intuition of practicality in 
racist Uncle Steve that you know you don't have. So when I say anybody who voted for Donald Trump has broken a deal and crossed a line that I can't possibly follow because all the racist, uh, homophobic, misogynistic, pussy-grabbing shit he said wasn't enough to lose their vote. That's that's me. If I'm, uh, you know, Spencer Q. Millennial debating racist Uncle Steve, in my heart, buried way, way below any kind of conscious introspection, I'm worried that racist Uncle Steve will just be more practical than I was and vote for pure economic uh, reasons and all the racism is just a show and culture and the deep down he's a more practical person than I am that he can actually build a country that I can only live in yeah and so you're you're afraid that you won't be able to like hold your own in a kind of like nitty gritty economics discussion were it to occur yes the thing Spencer really hates about Steve is that Steve seems confident and Spencer only has a pose yeah, the Steve seeming confident seems like it's really important. Yeah, it, the hard part about debating somebody who knows what they think and isn't shy about it is if you don't know what you think. Yeah, you, this, 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 is, this is the key point. If uh, if racist Uncle Steve says that uh, all black people should be sterilized, that's a position, right? It's a position that you're going to be forced to react to as a reactionary. And if you think about it, anything Spencer says is basically going to be a reaction, even if it's a statement he's putting forward without responding to something Steve has specifically said. And the fact that Spencer has no particular vision of the future, to use a term yeah. of art, uh, that weighs on Spencer and makes him weak, totally. uh, even before he opens his mouth. I feel like, uh, like, also, one of the things about conservatives is the thing the uncle says is going to be something about you. It's going to be, you want to take my guns away? You think, eh, you think... You know, we need quotas in colleges to get these people in. You want to raise taxes on the rich. You And if you try to radio lab that situation and be like, well, no, I'm just looking at middle class tax cuts and blah, blah. I mean, this is Hillary's whole problem is she thought that there was like an angle you could take mm-hmm. where you weren't in any way exposed. You didn't have to take a firm position and that you'd somehow convince the uncle. I think you would do, all of us would do much yeah. better being like, yes, I want to raise taxes on yeah, the rich. Needless to say, That's Hillary Clinton is a typhoid thing. fucking Mary of the end of history. Well, and it's, you know, it, the fact is we all uh, are, we all have a fever right now, right? The political discourse is disease uh, in general. I don't mean to be, I don't mean to blow y'all's minds, but no one's really talking to each other. And so in other words, I tend to think that no, turns out none of this listening to Radiolab has even done the liberal any good because even if Radiolab has a segment where some scientist is giving you discrete data points and um, sort of in saying in speech the curve that connects all these data points, you haven't retained that enough or you don't have the confidence enough, perhaps because he's introduced as a scientist in unique possession of this expertise, uh, you, you yourself can't sort of articulate that narrative thread. It's, it's so good. It makes you so... It, your desire for having the facts as opposed to sort of having to just make an argument means you are relying on experts. So then when the other side pulls the trick of your experts are a hoax by China. That's you it. Actually, you're done. Yeah, that's it. You're just, you're done. Yeah. All you, I mean, all you can sort of say is like, well, wait, wait, what expert told you that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like prove that, bring me the experts that prove my experts. Or they just straw man yeah. your and you this know, is, appeal to authority. And by the way, that is a future conspiracy theory adherent right there. This, this is one way in which a conspiracy theorist is born. 
In other words, by not ever having the ability to meet out good information from bad, which involves knowing a thing or two about um, like what caliber and quality uh, qualities make information worth possessing. Well, if you never get past that. If you just take certain chunks as they're given to you by authorities, then you're prone to accept some authoritative sounding information. You have these super confident, like, Republican uncles who like always, you know, they're like, I was in the military for all these years and they're sort of relying on their gut and and doing it badly. But you don't want to respond to that with, you know, just what you were able to gather from the various uh, authorities you have. You need to develop some sort of real world gut testing of things. Isn't that how you spot fake news, too, is you're just like, wait, why would she do that in this like weird story? Yeah, and the sick part is Spencer's been in the army too all these years, except he's in the large invisible army called technocratic democracy. <laughs> right. Like you see Hardly that? organized enough to be an army. Did you guys see I mean, that? It doesn't look that way from the top. <laughs> well, but in truth, though, Spencer's not at the top. We're not no, at the top. Spencer's not at the top. Spencer's a fucking foot soldier who doesn't know he has a commander. Yeah, this, but this is what I'm saying. So in other words, he feels unorganized and like, he's, like he doesn't have his marching orders. Like he doesn't have a mission. Or whatever. And that itself might be a, a mission. In other words, someone at the top might be trying to just neutralize people, like potential yeah, yeah, like, no, all, all left-leaning idealists. Yeah. Racist Steve's a certain way because he was in the army, and Spencer's a certain way because he was in a different army. No, well, I fucking heard you, man. I'm just trying, I'm really trying why to... Why don't you put both your earbuds in or do the left and right properly? They're time. all in. In other words, I'm trying to really talk about the idea of an army of Spencer's as being something that Spencer doesn't have the wherewithal to see. So maybe you're right. In other words, maybe there's a top-down design for a class of young people who are just like a wash in information, more so than ever before, who have no tools how to make sense of it, and they basically all have to major in management or accounting in order to get a job. Maybe that's right, but it doesn't feel like that at all to him. And I think that's important. Wait, it doesn't, what doesn't, it doesn't do feel it? like he's uh, in an army of people just like that. In fact, maybe it feels less like that than ever, right? We're all like we like the degree to which you could personalize your media atmosphere right now is is higher than ever. I it's very I feel like I missed the moment when the liberal became Spencer, but <laughs> but you know, may I think maybe Spencer missed it too. Like that's just how <laughs> this shit works. He's lucky, you know, that he didn't become Dylan Roof when he yeah. Was it at his lowest, and he was you know chemically imbalanced and fucking reading the internet. He just he went to Craigslist that day or whatever the fuck it is. But there there's something about the story. There's some part of it where, um, and I I don't think we can just blame Radiolab. But at some point, we lost a model for some kind of self sufficient adult. There's some way in which I I feel like Spencer is not really living in his life and is like deeply invested in what he reads on the internet or you know what I mean? Like weird I do reversal. know what you mean. And that's, and, and not, I feel that myself too, as a, as a man, I think a little bit older than, than the Spencer of our creation, but you know, author David Banks knows that this problem is bigger than NPR podcast. This is the line I was looking for and finally found in the article outsourcing self-validation to the illusion of scientific authority is an abdication. Of course it is. In other yeah. words, Self-validation is something is like a process that is hard and lifelong and complicated and one needs to like soak up influences and try things and fail things. But of course, you could just opt out entirely. I want to say like that has that sort of outsourcing is happening on both ends where like not only instead of 
sort of taking a position yourself, have you outsourced that to sort of experts? And then you're going to arrive and deliver what the expert thinks and the language of the expert as opposed to uh, something more personal that comes from you. But you're not even just like presenting that information to yourself to decide what you think. You so often live or like interact in social media or whatever as, a, as if the self was just self-presentation. So your entire sense of yourself comes from like co-opting these sort of found opinions and presentation styles, you know, this detailed scientist evidence to your Twitter followers or whatever. Yeah. And there's a kind of real emptiness there that that doesn't let you really act. You know, that there's Spencer is sort of fucked because he's a constant performer and what he's performing is a play that he thinks will work based on the research. Yeah. You want to find somebody who believes in nothing, find someone who elaborately curates their own personality and appearance. Yeah. Well, of course, um, to to some degree, we're all doing that, right? I mean, to some degree, we're all Why the secret lesson of how to be an innovator might be hidden in Romanian orphanages. <laughs> Does driving the right car help unarmed black men avoid being shot by the police? Sources say it does. It's like, it's like no. Brought to you by Toyota Camry. <laughs> I mean, I some of these probably were like probably exist. Yeah, no, I mean, some of some of these are chapters in a filing cabinet from Tom Friedman's book. I think I I don't know where I got the idea that Steve. Miller band travels with 10 or 14 Steve Miller impersonators, but that feels really right to me. They like killing them. Like Saddam Hussein? Yeah, no, but they're all in the same place. It's not to throw you off Steve Miller's track. It's that Steve Miller is more of a c- construct. <laughs> that, you know, it is weird that you need the what do you call in the band, Steve? Hey, Steve Miller, what are you going to call your band? <laughs> Steve Miller, what are you going to call your band and who are these people you're traveling with? 